Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the life and times of China's president, Xi Jinping, and his rise to be China's first non-term-limited president, who also, not coincidentally, has a bit of an authoritarian streak. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, Today Explained, Consider This, the PBS NewsHour, and Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, with additional members-only clips from Today Explained and Democracy Now! And while I have your attention, please consider setting your podcatching app to notify you every time we release a new episode so you don't miss any. We begin today's show looking at China, where Xi Jinping has begun a historic third term as head of the Chinese Communist Party. The decision came over the weekend during the party's Congress, which is held every five years. There was also a major shakeup of the seven-member Politburo Standing Committee, which is China's most powerful governing body. China's premier, Li Keqiang, longtime rival to Xi, was demoted while four Xi loyalists were promoted. The party's top official in Shanghai, Li Chang, appeared is set to become China's new premier. He's a close ally of Xi. He oversaw the harsh COVID crackdown in Shanghai that lasted months. Perhaps the most dramatic moment of the Chinese Communist Party's Congress came when former President Hu Jintao was abruptly escorted out of the closing ceremony. He'd been sitting right next to Xi Jinping when two men came to escort him from his seat. Some analysts speculated the move was an assertion of Xi's dominance. Chinese state media later said it was because the former leader was not feeling well. We turn now to look more closely at the future of China as Xi Jinping begins a third term. Under Xi, China's continued decades-long effort to eradicate extreme poverty. Some 800 million people have been lifted out of poverty over the past four decades, and what U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has called, quote, the greatest anti-poverty achievement in history. But Xi has also overseen a growing surveillance state to silence dissent and target ethnic minorities, including the Uyghurs. And Xi's third term comes at a time of growing tension between the U.S. and China over over Taiwan and other issues. We go now to two guests. Yacha Wang is senior China researcher at Human Rights Watch. She's in New York. And in Baltimore, Maryland, we're joined by Ho Feng Hong, professor of political economy and sociology at Johns Hopkins University. His books include Clash of Empires, From Chimerica to the New Cold War and the China Boom, Why China Will Not Rule the World. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Thanks so much for joining us. Professor Ho Feng Hong, let's begin with you. Talk about the significance of what happened this weekend. Talk about who Xi Jinping is and how his policies have changed over the years. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. And uh, what happened over the weekend is very significant in the sense that uh, though we actually uh, expect it to come uh, for a while, because in 2018, uh, Xi Jinping managed to abolish the, the five the two five-year term limit of uh, the Chinese uh, president. Uh, uh, that is kind of a term limit that uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, led to impose uh, in the Chinese constitution in the 1980s, because uh, after the Cultural Revolution, Deng and the Communist Party leader think that it is not good to have lifelong leader. Uh, it is good to have check and balance within the party. Uh, and Xi Jinping managed to uh, take away this term limit so that a uh, lot like his predecessors, uh, Hu Jintao and uh, Jiang Jiamin, that who each searched two five terms uh, time as, as president of China, Xi can now theoretically serve uh, unlimited term that until he died and he, he can be a lifelong leader of China. So this kind of uh, abolition of the term limit as a legacy of the Deng Xiaoping era uh, is significant. So it was done in 2018, but people uh, didn't believe that uh, uh, other party elite will let him actually uh, do it to have another the third uh, five-year term, but he managed to do it. Uh, it's just proven over the weekend that he managed to do it. Not only that, uh, but also he managed to put all of his own uh, loyalists, absolute loyalists, in the Politburo Standing Committee. Uh, uh, so the, the people from other factions, for example, some people who tip to be in the Politburo Standing Committee or the Politburo who belong to the Hu Jintao, the uh, previous president faction, 
uh, we're not there. Um, so uh, it seems uh, that in the next five years, at least, uh, the Xi Jinping is established his own absolute uh, personal control of everything in China without much check and balance within the party. And talk about what happened this weekend. Do you think that was deliberately staged to remove the former leader sitting next to Xi Jinping as a message that he was consolidating his power? Or, in fact, do you think it is what uh, China said, what the government said, that he wasn't feeling well? Definitely that uh, in this kind of a carefully choreographed uh, rituals of the Communist Party, uh, it is unimaginable. There's this kind of uh, accident or incident that is uh, totally uh, out of um, nowhere. Um, and of course, there is a possibility that he actually feel unwell. But now more video footage uh, uh, emerged from the Spanish and the Singaporean TV showing what happened uh, before he was uh, pre uh, former president Hu Jintao was escorted away from the Congress. It didn't seem like he is unwell at all, that uh, it uh, appear in those video footage that he tried to open a folder with some documents. And uh, Li Zhansu, who is uh, sitting next to him, tried to prevent him from looking at the document and seize the folder. And then Xi Jinping called somebody to come and uh, take him away. And initially, he appeared to be reluctant to leave. And then uh, the, uh, uh, the the, the guards uh, and, 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 and the person behind Hu Jintao uh, seems to be using some kind of uh, force to take him away. And then he eventually um, left the Congress uh, reluctantly. And then uh, after he uh, decided to leave and he walked quite fast and then he can walk on his own. And, and it didn't seem to me that uh, he's actually really feeling unwell. And I don't think it is the real reason that he left. And then uh, why Xi Jinping called somebody to escort him or even for really forcefully take him away from the Congress that I think Xi Jinping uh, move is uh, carefully considered and calculated to show that he can do whatever he wants and he can even take out uh, a former president. Uh, uh, from the Congress uh, in front of the camera. And of course, that uh, people are speculating that I think it is reasonable to suppose so that Hu Jintao might not be very happy about the, the so-called election result of the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee without any of his loyalists there. Uh, and uh, Xi Jinping might worry that he might give a face or a lot raising hands or a lot clapping hands. Uh, in the final section, so uh, it is a possibility that Xi Jinping deliberately uh, asked somebody to take him out to prevent this embarrassment. When do we start to see hints of his authoritarian tendencies? Well, it's hard to say when they began or if they were always there. But in the kind of written record, I think some of the first signs we have comes from when he moved to Fujian in southern China, the province across from Taiwan. And there he is a leader of a small town at the time when you have the Tiananmen Square protests. Students everywhere are excited about the idea of China changing. Protesters stressed that they're not denouncing the Communist Party, but insisted they'll keep marching until officials agree in ongoing negotiations to more open local elections and to fair coverage of the protests in local media. And so at this time, Xi Jinping is dealing with the local offshoots of these protests. 80s is the time that the whole country felt the hope and then the promises by the government. There are some students who want to come in from a neighboring province to sort of protest at the larger you know, city nearby, and he prevents them from doing that. You know, a lot of people are arrested. It's hard to say how many Xi Jinping was directly involved in, but certainly he would have to some extent, manage the crackdown locally. He says that censorship is actually something that every country does, and to an extent, it's a good thing. 
And so you really get this sense um, that even then, even when he was a lowly official and he didn't really have any stake in it, that he was out to defend the party center. And is this how he goes from being a, a lowly official to a not so lowly official? Right, exactly. So he proves himself a number of times. He seems to be pretty tough on corruption. He also is someone who does a reasonably good job of pushing China's market reforms, uh, involved in free trade zones being set up in Fujian. You know, he's someone who manages to start to meld the economic reform with quite a stern approach to any dissent. Uh, and so that model, uh, which we now see kind of continuing to today, um, it sort of runs throughout his career. And is there any sense when he enters office in 2012 that he could potentially be China's first ever president for life? One of the strange things about what has happened over the last decade is that when Xi came into power, a lot of outside observers thought he was probably going to be a reformer. And one of the reasons they thought this is they they looked at his father, who seemed to be, you know, by standards of the time, a relative reformer. He had pushed economic reforms in southern China and Deng Xiaoping. And they looked at his own record. He had, you know, launched free trade zones uh, and had encouraged private business. And they thought, okay, China's pretty open now. They just hosted the Summer Olympics. We just had this power transition that went pretty smoothly. Maybe this is a time when things will change. But pretty soon afterwards, Xi Jinping showed everyone to be wrong. Almost immediately, he launches this huge anti-corruption campaign. And he goes after not just kind of low-level corruption, but some of the top people in the party. In fact, one of the most senior person who has ever been taken down uh, falls within C's first couple of years in office, the former head of uh, public security, Zhou Yongkang. At a secret trial in northeast China, Zhou convicted for bribery, abuse of power, and leaking national secrets. And then, in pretty short order, he cracks down on civil society, he begins this uh, series of political reforms, trying to forcing people to start memorizing more kind of party jargon and slogans, these study sessions. And in 2016, he's designated the core leader of the party, which is a title that hasn't existed for about two decades. Is it that kind of consolidation of power that allows him to clamp down on the Uyghur population in China? It's part of it. But for Xi Jinping, really, stability and unity are just absolutely key. In Xinjiang, there have been a series of violent incidents. First, it was a deadly explosion at this train station. Then assailants slashed at arriving passengers with knives. There have been calls for kind of greater autonomy. And he's kind of worried that this is going to start fracturing, start spiraling. Soon after, China's official broadcaster quoting the president blamed the country's separatists. We must recognize the long-term, complex and acute nature of the struggle between separatism and anti-separatism in Xinjiang. It could be something that could spread to other regions. Inner Mongolia, Tibet, obviously, has always been a deep concern for the party. So he kind of comes in and says, you know, enough with this. We cannot accept this dissent and brands it as extremism and launches you know, re-education campaign in Xinjiang. Today's episode is sponsored by Mint Mobile, which I am happy to say is my new cell phone service provider. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless, if we've all learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. 
except when there's not a catch, which is the case with Mint Mobile's offer of premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Meanwhile, Mint service is provided by literally the same towers and network providers you'd be using if you paid one of the big guys way more, and I can attest that I've been getting great service and snappy downloads. I mean, the whole point of great mobile service is that it's supposed to just work while you forget about it, and that has certainly been the case for me. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. So for anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/best. That's mintmobile.com/best. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/best. 10 years ago, in his first speech as the leader of the world's most populous nation and second largest economy, Xi Jinping talked about the great revival of the Chinese nation. Under his leadership, she said, China would stand more firmly and powerfully and make a greater contribution to mankind. Uyghur scholar Ilham Toti was paying close attention. He sounded so excited. He's like, I think it's going to change now. Things are going to get better. That's Toti's daughter, Jur Ilham. She says her father was optimistic that things would improve for Uyghurs, the Turkic-speaking ethnic minority living in China's western region of Xinjiang. Toti is an outspoken activist for Uyghur rights. But his high hopes for Xi Jinping didn't last long. He was officially arrested uh, January 15th, 2014. Three months later, Xi would visit Xinjiang and secretly set in motion an unprecedented crackdown on Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in the name of fighting terrorism and separatism. By some estimates, a million or more people would eventually be detained. That September, Ilham Toti was sentenced to life in prison for separatism. It's kind of sad that he was so hopeful. In the 10 years since she first came to power, China has been marked by growing authoritarianism. But she has also faced challenges. His tough zero-COVID policy included strict lockdowns that sparked rare protests and weakened the Chinese economy. Relations with the U.S. have deteriorated sharply, in part because of tensions over the status of Taiwan. She has also cultivated a close relationship with Russia's Vladimir Putin, even after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Not a particularly popular move on the global stage. But as Chinese politics expert Joseph Torrigian puts it, The Chinese Communist Party is not a popularity contest. And even if it were, it's hard to gauge public opinion in China. Independent polling on politics is banned, and speaking out against the Communist Party can get you thrown in jail. Plus, Xi Jinping does have a lot of support in the country, from people like Lao Zhang, a retired factory worker who's seen a lot of change in China over his 72 years. Xi Jinping is a good man. I think he's honest and upright. According to Zhang, that's key in today's China. He applauds Xi for attacking corruption, tackling poverty, and trying to create more equality. And he praises him for unapologetically standing up for China on the international stage. We want him to stay in office and have at least one more term. He's good. The world got a glimpse of what a third term with Xi Jinping in power could mean for China moving forward during a nearly two-hour speech he delivered on the opening day of this year's Communist Party Congress. She echoed his words from a decade ago, saying that now is a historical opportunity for China to raise its standing and influence in the world. He once again defended his aggressive zero-COVID policy, and he hinted at further pressure on unification with Taiwan, saying, We reserve the option of taking all measures necessary. He also warned of dangerous storms facing China. 
Yoon Soon is a senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia Program and director of the China Program at the Stemson Center. She says ominous warnings like that aren't unusual for Xi Jinping. Because that's actually part of the government tactics or his leadership techniques, which is to warn the people of the dangers that China is in and then showcase to the people that I am your best option. I can lead you out of this obstacle and I can lead you out of these difficult times. So it's more of a leadership legitimization. Yoon Soon foresees a bolder Xi Jinping in the near future. She spoke to my colleague Elsa Chang about what a third Xi term says about his hold over the Chinese Communist Party now. It means that China has entered a new era and it's really a piece of uncharted water compared to what we have seen in the past four decades. In the past four decades, per the 1982 constitution, we knew that for sure China had a power transition plan for the leadership. So every 10 years, there is going to be a new leader and there is a consensus building process in terms of the selection of that leader. Mm -hmm. But now by abandoning that practice and that tradition, Xi Jinping's Third term means that we don't know what the future leadership transition in China will look like or how it will be determined. And that raises a lot of potential for instability or even power struggle and elite politics competition within the Chinese Communist Party. And what's interesting is it has been a relatively politically trickier time for Xi Jinping lately, right? Like, can you talk about the effect that the zero COVID policy and the resulting economic slowdown in China has had on Xi's influence? Yes, indeed. 2022 has not been a good year for Xi Jinping. And especially if you consider the power transition and the third term that he has had his eyes on. 2022 is a terrible year. The Russian war in Ukraine also created a lot of uncertainty as well as uh, embarrassment for China in terms of Xi Jinping's foreign policy. People ask questions that how did you reach that no limit cooperation commitment with Putin? Did you know that Putin was going to invade Ukraine within three weeks of that joint statement. So this year has really been hard for Xi Jinping because he has to explain, despite all these hardships and all these strategic headwind that we have encountered this year, I still deserve a third term. Right. My leadership is still warranted. My leadership is still the best option for the party and for the Chinese people. The party congress is celebrated and Chinese people just hope that, well, let's conclude this party congress so that we can move forward. We can reduce some of the COVID-related restrictions and we can resume normal economic and social activities. Mm. I want to talk further about the global implications of a third term for Xi Jinping. What does his holding on to power mean specifically for U.S.-China relations in your mind? I think it means three things. The first one is that with Xi Jinping inking his third term at the party congress, which means moving forward, he is not going to be distracted by this domestic political priority anymore. In the past five years, I would say Xi Jinping was aiming for the third term, but he had to prioritize how to convince the establishment within the party and convince the elderly leaders why it is a good idea to remove the term limit and why it is a good idea for him to violate the traditions that had been established. So moving forward, he's no longer going to be distracted by this political agenda, which is domestic primarily. Mm -hmm. So he's able to focus even more on implementing his foreign strategy and operationalizing his vision of the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. That inevitably will lead to even more, I would say, contest for influence and contest for leadership, contest for superiority with the United States. And the other two factors is within the party. After the 20th Party Congress and Xi Jinping secures his third term, he is going to appoint his political confidants and his political loyalists to all the key positions that are related to national security mm-hmm. and the foreign policy, because this is actually one of the area compared to, for example, domestic reform and domestic economic policy. This is an area that Xi Jinping is going to prevail. These people are going to operationalize his vision and his strategy with even more momentum and more precision. And that leads us to the third factor, which is dissenting views. And the people who do not believe that Xi Jinping's current, for example, policy towards the United States is a good idea, their voices are going to be eliminated from within the bureaucracy. 
So there is not going to be check and balance. There is not going to be a challenge to the assumptions and to the existing consensus <laughs> within the bureaucracy. And these three factors are all going to, I believe, deepen Xi Jinping's boldness. Professor Ho Feng Hung, she's uh, uh, human rights record. What that means, and your assessment uh, of his rule and the effect he's had on the Chinese people, and your response to the UN Secretary General um, Antonio Guterres uh, talking about this, uh, what he called, uh, you know, monumental uh, taking on largest anti-poverty program in history. Yeah, definitely that uh, Xi Jinping, uh, like his predecessor Hu Jintao, is a kind of a brutal repressor of human rights. And uh, uh, it's not that uh, human rights violations started in Xi Jinping. Actually, in the, in the Jiang Jiamin era, in the Hu Jintao era, we already see a lot of crackdown uh, in, in the Han majority area and also the Lan Han minority regions. But Xi Jinping but just raised it to the new level. Uh, as we are now f- uh, very much aware of what happened to the Uyghurs in, in, in Xinjiang, it is uh, happening under Xi Jinping watch. Uh, so in terms of um, the repression of human rights, the Communist Party, uh, whether it is collective leadership or it is one-man dictatorship, uh, it has been pretty much the same. And what Xi Jinping uh, brought in to, uh, something new compared to the Hu Jintao and Jiang Jiamin era is that he even... Uh, crack down brutally on his uh, allies, his other elite within the Communist Party. Because um, after the, uh, Xi Jinping became the president, he launched its uh, anti-corruption campaign. And then uh, many uh, elites, even senior officials and private business uh, people uh, uh, disappear or uh, mysteriously commit suicide or taken to jail under the name of anti-corruption campaign. Uh, and many people will see that uh, it is a lot exciting anti-corruption campaign. It is more like a purge. Um, so uh, in China nowadays, not only uh, uh, dissidents and, and, and minorities uh, are afraid, but also some elite and middle class and also Xi Jinping double down on uh, expanding the state sectors, uh, state companies and making uh, private companies and foreign companies uh, uh, life more difficult in making money in in China and keeping their wealth and uh, jeopardizing their private property as well. Uh, so uh, in the next five years, at the very least, that uh, this kind of uh, draconian policy that I uh, called some kind of uh, love colonization of China's politics and the economy uh, is going to double down and is going to get worse. Um, and Yacha Wang, the significance of Li Keqiang, a longtime rival to Xi, uh, he's demoted while his loyalist Li Chang looks like he's about to be China's new premier. You mentioned the crackdown in Shanghai, but talk about the significance of the COVID crackdown, what it actually felt and looked like in uh, this massive city. Well, I mean, it lasted from April to June for two months that, you know, that a city of 20 million people are confined to their homes. And as a result, uh, you know, people had huge difficulties to uh, have food delivered to them and to access uh, to hospitals. And I've heard stories from people whose parent has a heart attack or other emergency, and they couldn't leave their uh, uh, apartment complex or even they managed to leave their apartment complex. They couldn't actually get into the hospital. Um, So there are people who died as a result of of the lack of access to hospital facilities. So, and then there are the people who had no food. And then there are the people who lost their jobs and they couldn't pay to get food delivered. So the, 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 the human rights violations associated with this draconian lockdown was massive. And then, you know, it ended. And the people say, you know, Li Chang, the, uh, the, the party secretary of Shanghai is ultimately responsible for this. Now this guy was promoted. So you can see, you know, she is rewarding uh, people who are loyal to his policy rather than rewarding uh, people who are good for the, the, the public. 
Um, Professor Ho Feng Hung, I mean, relations with China are, if not in an all-time low, extremely bad right now. And I'm wondering if you can comment on uh, what is taking place. Uh, in one of the pieces you wrote, you said the dynamics of U.S.-China rivalry is an inter-imperial rivalry driven by inter-capitalist competition. Competition for the world market could soon turn into intensifying clashes of spheres of influence and even war. So, you're not talking about uh, the difference of ideologies. In fact, you're talking about a similar capitalist ideology. Yes, indeed. That uh, I myself is not quite um, um, supportive of the, the framing of the U.S.-China rivalry as a Liu Cold War. Uh, it is a catchphrase uh, used a lot of time nowadays, uh, indicating that the difference uh, between China and U.S. is fundamentally ideological and political. I think, of course, that uh, this difference is real. It's very true. It's, there's a large difference, but it is not the uh, necessary and sufficient conditions that lead to this uh, rivalry between the U.S. and China today. Because right after the 1989 massacre, uh, human rights is already a huge concern about China in the discussion in the U.S., and many people already uh, are very unhappy about what is going on in China with regard to human rights and Tibet, Xinjiang. It is all old problem that uh, in the 1990s, but in the 1990s, U.S.-China relations get more and more harmonious regardless of this human rights difference and political system difference. Um, what uh, is different uh, now uh, in comparison to the 1990s and 2000s is that uh, back in the 1990s and 2000s, transnational corporation, American corporation, they are very happy making money in China. Uh, they have a good time in China. And so they don't care about the human rights. They don't care about labor rights. They don't care about all kind of political difference between U.S. and China. But uh, so far as they are making big money, they are finding it very profitable in China. So they lobby the U.S. government, the U.S. Congress, uh, to have a more amicable and harmonious relation with China whenever there is a concern about uh, labor rights, human rights violation. Uh, uh, in China, in the Congress, they will lobby against those bills uh, in the 1990s and 2000s. So the U.S. corporations um, uh, have been uh, kind of uh, ambassadors of the, of, the, of the Chinese government to soften U.S. policy uh, on China, uh, even though geopolitically and in terms of human rights, political system and ideology, there's already a vast difference. What happened after 2000, around 2010, is that uh, uh, China economy um, started to lose steam. Uh, the economic pie no longer expand that fast. And then uh, the market share in, in, in the, the U.S. corporation market share in China start to stagnate or even decline. Uh, because the Chinese uh, government is helping the Chinese state enterprise and Chinese private enterprise to expand the market share in China and around the world in the Belt and Road country at the expense of U.S. corporations. So it is a turning point that uh, U.S. corporations rarely individually uh, voice their concern about this uh, business environment in China. Uh, of course, there's also other problems like intellectual property theft, uh, and unfair competition and unfair enforcement of regulation, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, they don't voice this concern individually, but in the survey, the anonymous survey conducted by, for example, the American Chamber of Commerce in China and U.S.-China Business Council and all these kind of uh, uh, association, business association in the U.S. all show that the American business in China situation is deteriorating. Uh, they are uh, looking for diversifying their investment, uh, and they no longer uh, eager to lobby the, in in uh, in the names of Chinese interests. Uh, so it is why the geopolitical difference uh, between U.S. and China, um, the human rights and political difference between U.S. and China can uh, now prevail and um, uh, influence uh, 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 largely that uh, the direction of U.S.-China policy. So fundamentally, it is a kind of a intercapitalist competition between U.S. corporation and China corporation in the Chinese market and in the Belt and Road and other developing countries' market that lead to this deterioration of U.S.-China relations. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and although gifting is hard, Bombas makes it easy with socks, underwear, and t-shirts that feel good and do good. They feel good because they're thoughtfully designed with the softest materials 
and they do good because for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone in need. Bombas really are a great gift because they focus on the basics that everyone needs, like socks, underwear, t-shirts, and now slippers, and simply knock them out of the park with exceptionally soft and comfortable materials combined with high-tech design features. And you're going to want to check out their holiday collection that puts a modern twist on traditional festive colors and designs. Think rich purples and greens, geometric snowflake designs, sweater-inspired textures, and retro ski patterns. Meanwhile, socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested items at homeless shelters, which is precisely why that's Bomba's focus. And so far, Bomba's customers like you have helped donate over 75 million items of essential clothing through a network of 3,500 on-the-ground organizations serving their communities. Give the good this holiday season with Bombas. Go to bombas.com slash best and use the code best for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best and the code best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. When exactly is it that the world comes to know she is not just a very powerful dude, but a human rights violator? It starts probably around 2015 when there's a uh, mass crackdown on human rights lawyers. Hundreds of people overnight are detained, arrested. Many of them later end up with lengthy prison sentences. China put its state police on display as the show trial of its best-known human rights lawyer got underway inside Beijing Number 2 Intermediate People's Court. And then after that, you just start to see that this isn't a one-off, this is a trend. We have the, the crackdown in Xinjiang. Any Uyghur family you can ask have someone in the camp right now, maybe whole family the crackdown in Hong Kong. This morning, thousands of protesters on Hong Kong streets clashing with riot police. Barriers torn down, rubber bullets and tear gas fired into the chaos. It's very clear that Xi is determined as much as possible not to let any of these grassroots movements, whether it's right activism or distinct ethnic identity, um, from challenging uh, his grip on power. And this essentially works, right? Nothing really stops him because in 2018, despite human rights abuses and and consolidating power, China ends term limits setting Xi up to do what he's doing right now, to become president for life, to extend his terms more than anyone has before him. Xi Jinping has done a pretty good job of building up a base of legitimacy. Um, So his anti-corruption campaign, which helped him to uh, gather power, that dealt with a lot of the kind of petty corruption that was really impacting people's lives on an everyday basis. Uh, he also had uh, a huge push to deal with extreme poverty, which was declared successful. Um, he's kind of made China look strong on a global stage. He's not shied away from conflicts with the US or other countries. I mean, nationalism is a great way of building your support in, in any country. We can't continue to allow China to rape our country, and that's what they're doing. Um, You know, he's a real populist leader. And so, yes, I think people are concerned, but they don't necessarily think that he's doing a bad job. Until the global pandemic, COVID-19. At the start of 2020, it looked like it was a big, big issue. Um, C kind of disappeared for a while. And then he reappears and imposes, you know, the strictest lockdown that at the time, you have to remember, this wasn't something that had happened globally um, that, you know, had ever been done before. This was a huge, huge thing. People also started to ask questions about whether or not um, C's mode of governance, where so much decision-making power was in his own hands, had slowed down the response. You know, the local officials weren't acting fast enough. So it really seemed like it was going to undermine um, his power, or at least be a black mark. But pretty quickly, China turns things around. And that's one of the kind of amazing things about what Xi's been able to do as a leader is he was able to build this narrative of, look, we have a model that works. 
Yes, people made sacrifices, but ultimately those sacrifices allowed us to achieve zero COVID. So for for many, many months, China was having basically no cases on a day-to-day basis. And at the same time, the rest of the world, as we all know, was struggling with huge outbreaks. So she was able to flip the narrative and to say, look, we have a system that works. And yes, maybe it stumbles occasionally, but we get it back on track. As she enters his third term, as he becomes maybe the most powerful leader in the world, and certainly the most powerful leader in China since Mao Zedong, in earnest, how much does his version of, you know, consolidated power look like the last time China saw it in Mao Zedong? There are some similarities and I think bigger differences. So Mao Zedong was really a revolutionary leader. He came to power through political infighting and then a civil war. He then tried to keep power with these really kind of drastic steps, including launching the Cultural Revolution, which kind of handed power over to the people uh, in a way that Xi Jinping would just never do. So Xi is much more cautious. His power has been built by centralizing um, the institutions of control that the party has had for a long time and making sure that he has firm hold of the levers of power. So he is kind of working within the system, building it around himself, whereas Mao would go around it on a fairly regular basis. But in some ways, they are similar because... I think in the collective um, memory of the party, in the way that it talks about itself, Xi Jinping is trying to kind of continue where Mao left off. So Mao founded the nation, and now Xi Jinping is trying to make it great again. And so he has this phrase where China has stood up, which was what Mao said, and then it got rich, which is what Deng Xiaoping made happen with reform, and now it's getting strong. And that's the kind of new era that Xi Jinping is trying to take charge of so that he can have a legacy which is on par with Mao's. You know, this idea that he might be now the most powerful person in the world goes hand in hand with wanting to change the world. What do you think Xi wants to do internationally with all of his power? Well, I think the key thing he wants to do is return China to a position of being one of, if not the strongest nations on earth and being kind of entirely safe from any form of disruption to its hold on that position. At the same time, the Chinese people will never allow any foreign forces to bully, oppress or enslave us. Anyone who dares to try to do that will have their heads bashed blooded against the Great Wall of Steel, forged by over 1.4 billion Chinese people. You know, they talk a lot in China in the history books about a century of humiliation when China was invaded and you had the opium wars and you had this great downfall, but then the Communist Party came and put the nation back on track. And now we are bringing about this great rejuvenation. The unmistakable hallmarks of Communist Party rule were front and centre of its celebrations. The total control, the omnipotent leader, the unquestioning loyalty. And so to make that happen, Xi Jinping needs a world where the model, the political model he's creating is not just accepted, but kind of believed in globally by a number of partners. You know, you see the partnership with Russia, you see them building uh, various relationships across the global south. So I think it's it's really trying to create a version of the global order where it's okay to be an authoritarian leader like Xi Jinping. 
The ride is bumpy, but the surroundings are pristine, with fields brimming with crops. This is the village of Liangjiahe, considered a living shrine to China's leader. As a teenager, Xi Jinping was sent here under Mao Zedong's campaign to re-educate privileged urban youths. He spent seven years in the village, deep in rural Shanxi province, living in caves carved out of the hills. In one of them, a case displaying books she is said to have read. In another, posters of modern China's founding father. It was very hard time. François Bougon is a former Beijing correspondent and author of Inside the Mind of Xi Jinping. He says Xi's time in Liangjiahe formed the foundations of his future. The years in Liangjiahe uh, is used right now in his political career. Uh, he, he can say he's a man of the people, a down-to-earth man, and not only the son of a revolutionary uh, a red aristocrat. Xi's father suffered as a result of Mao Zedong's purge of potential rivals, and in Liangjia heard the younger Xi endured hard labor. But far from turning against China's Communist Party, he embraced it. In Mao, he saw a role model. He's the first leader since the death of Mao in 1976 to acknowledge the legacy of Mao without reservation. Uh, he follows Mao in the way he governs the party, uh, the cult of personality, it's very Mao style. Now, as the twice-a-decade party congress nears, she is expected to take a step closer to emulating his political hero. Having scrapped presidential term limits in 2018, he's paved the way for a historic third five-year term as leader. And Xi's quest for power could extend well beyond that, with many political analysts believing, like Mao, he intends to rule for life. But it comes as the country faces mounting challenges under the 69-year-old Xi Jinping's leadership. Ongoing and frequent lockdowns across the country under his signature zero-COVID policy have taken a heavy toll. The International Monetary Fund this week cut its growth forecast for China this year to 3.2%, its weakest expansion in more than four decades, excluding the initial outbreak of the COVID-19 crisis in 2020. Earlier this year, authorities warned of action against any criticism of the country's COVID policies. But there are plenty of signs of people cracking. This COVID testing booth was spotted recently sprayed with graffiti, saying, give me freedom or give me death. Alfred Wu is an associate professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore. Lots of people were locked at home for months, then a lot of mental health issues. Now, uh, use unemployment rate is very, very high, almost 20%. So basically, it's uh, some sort of failure in China, but Chinese leadership, particularly under Xi Jinping, insists this is uh, the approach he wants to adopt. China's two-term limit was established in 1982 by the reformist leader who followed Mao, Deng Xiaoping, to avoid the kind of chaos that can occur under a single authoritarian leader. Deng Xiaoping's reform tried to tackle these issues. Deng Xiaoping won more check and balance uh, because they knew that uh, uh, Mao Zedong made a lot of mistakes. They were more than mistakes. Tens of millions of people died as a result of Mao's failed economic policies and his cultural revolution that led to brutal purges of national and horrific scale. He was China's unchallenged revolutionary leader for more than three decades. As part of the shake-up of China's leadership at the Party Congress, political scientists like Wu Chang expect Xi loyalists will replace outgoing members of China's top policy-making body, the Politburo Standing Committee giving him a level of control unseen since the days of Mao. A drastic change is happening with CCP's ruling approach, turning from an authoritarian system of market economy and globalization that's been running since 1992 to a totalitarian system. This totalitarian system is a new change for China's future and for the world. It's a fundamental change. Under Xi, China's relationship with the West has become particularly fraught. His declaration of a no-limits partnership with Russia's Vladimir Putin just weeks before his invasion of Ukraine drew international criticism. It's raised questions also at home. Su Chindor is a senior fellow at the Pangal Institute. Uh, Chinese principle is like uh, um, respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity. 
Um, so uh, some of the behaviors, some of the policies of the Russian uh, of the Rus- of Russia, is not really uh, in line with the Chinese principle. Rising nationalism fueled by Xi's assertive foreign policy has also strained China's image. According to Pew Research, some 82% of Americans now have a negative view of China. China's sense of insecurity and distrust towards international society results in international society's suspicions and distrust towards China. As China closes its borders, it ends up in a confrontational and contradictory relationship with the international community. Meanwhile, China's ambitions for national rejuvenation and some say global supremacy by 2049, when it marks the centenary of the People's Republic, have been dealt a fresh blow after the Biden administration rolled out sweeping regulations to limit Chinese access to semiconductors. It could crimp its ability to develop swathes of its economy. It's seen as the most aggressive action by President Biden yet to prevent China from developing technology that could pose a threat. It prompted an angry response from Beijing. In order to maintain the hegemony of science and technology, the United States abused export control measures and maliciously blocked and suppressed Chinese enterprises. This approach deviates from the principle of fair competition and violates international economic and trade rules. But even without that, the upcoming political gathering has fueled debate over whether one man should dominate this massive country and if it should turn away from the collective leadership that's transformed China into a powerhouse over the last four decades. the point of the story that you kind of knew was coming because so far everything that i've shown you is what she dada wants you to know about china but there is a lot of troubling stuff under the surface for instance uh, conveniently for she some of those swept up in the corruption purge were his political rivals and those accused were often funneled into a system that's been described as a secretive extra legal process where interrogators seek to extract confessions sometimes through torture and it's worth knowing that those term limits that he successfully eliminated were put in place for a pretty good reason specifically to avoid another mao under whose regime some horrific things happened in china from a collectivized farming attempt that was responsible for at least 45 million deaths uh, to a cultural revolution that was estimated to have killed at least another million to his belief that this swimsuit was flattering, which I realize now that I say it out loud, really doesn't belong with the other two in that list. The point, the point here is... She is actively removing the post-Mao guardrails that were put in place. And while China has never exactly been known as a haven for free expression, he has clamped down noticeably on any form of dissent whatsoever. There is dissent online, and China's censors are working hard to quash it. They temporarily ban the use of phrases such as personality cult and my emperor, and also references to Winnie the Pooh, a character long used to mock Xi Jinping based on an apparent resemblance. It's true. It's true. Apparently, Xi Jinping is very sensitive about his perceived resemblance to Winnie the Pooh. And I'm not even sure it's that strong a resemblance, to be honest. But the fact he's annoyed about it means people will never stop bringing it up. Trust me, she, if your face even remotely resembles that of a beloved cartoon character, the smart move here is to lean in. And, and clamping, clamping down, clamping down on Winnie the Pooh comparisons doesn't exactly project strength. It suggests a weird insecurity in him. And experts say that she is deeply concerned that public opinion will turn on him. China's economy is already slowing. And she is reportedly haunted by the spectres of the Arab Spring and the Soviet Union's collapse. And that paranoia may be why he's so anxious to micromanage Chinese daily life. The government has a list of untrustworthy people which can restrict citizens' ability to travel, uh, buy a house or take out loans. And over the next few years, there are plans to take things much further. Every Chinese citizen is being assigned a social credit score, a fluctuating rating based on a range of behaviors. It's believed that community service and buying Chinese-made products can raise your score. Fraud, tax evasion, and smoking in non-smoking areas can drop it. 
If a score gets too low, a person can be banned from buying plane and train tickets, real estate, cars, and even high-speed internet. Yeah, you could be cut off from high-speed internet, although that could actually be a huge opportunity for the finest purveyors of shitty low-speed internet. I'm talking, of course, about AT&T, one of America's least popular corporations, and also, as of this week, our parent company. So, goodbye, everyone. It's been fun. And look, it, it gets much, much darker here. In fact, she's cracked down on human rights. Is apparently the most intense since Tiananmen Square. And that is not good. Because Tiananmen Square is on the shortlist of places so infamous, you don't even need to describe what happened. Like Chernobyl, or Jonestown, or that one cheesecake factory we can't go to anymore. <laughs> And she has intensified government suppression of certain religions. Uh, in one province, uh, Christians have been told to take down the image of Jesus and hang portraits of she instead. Something I've also done, by the way. See, I think it really ties the room together. It's a nice accent piece. And, and, and a Muslim population known as Uyghurs have been singled out for dystopian levels of surveillance and persecution. Here is one man talking about a form that the government had him fill out. This piece of paper was sent to everyone. People had to fill it out. They asked things like, if you are Uyghur, if you have a job, if you have a passport, if you pray. All these answers were turned into a scoring system. They would categorize people into safe, regular, and unsafe people. Yeah, and that's pretty chilling, because generally speaking, whenever people are placed on lists, it's not really turned out well for anyone involved. Many of history's greatest monsters put people on lists. Uh, Nixon, the Nazis, Santa, all of these animals did that. And, and look, sure enough, if you are deemed unsafe for whatever reason, you're in big trouble. Because China has incarcerated Muslims in re-education camps with as many as 800,000 individuals in facilities which reportedly aim to rewire the political thinking of detainees, erase their Islamic beliefs and reshape their very identities, making Uncle Xi less like your fun uncle and more like your creepy uncle who imprisons 800,000 people in his basement. <laughs> And if you want to see what it looks like when Xi Jinping thought gets put into Xi Jinping practice, just, just take the story of Nobel Peace Prize winner Liu Xiaobo. He was imprisoned in 2009 for writing a pro-democracy manifesto, and last summer he died in state custody. And even China seemed concerned about how that might look. Fearing domestic backlash, government censors went to work. Social media posts mentioning Liu's name were deleted. Online searches with his name were blocked. Even simple candle emojis were deemed illegal on some sites. CNN's signal in China has been cut by government censors every time we mention his name. Exactly. The Chinese media wouldn't allow mentions of a Nobel Peace Prize winner's name, which is a pretty intense level of censorship. But it's also my personal policy towards Guatemalan activist Rigoberta Menchu. Do not bring her up around me. She knows what she did. You know what you did, Rigoberta. You know what you did. I don't want to hear her name on your lips. That's not what this speech is about. The, the, the point is, the point is... What happened to Liu Xiaobo and his wife, who is still under house arrest, is absolutely tragic. Although, to his credit, he didn't go down without taking a final swing. One of the last known photos of Liu was with his wife, Liu Xia. At first glance, unremarkable. But notice the mugs they're holding. Yep, that's Winnie the Pooh on there. Perhaps a final subtle act of defiance. Yeah, good for them. Good for them, because I think... I think deep down, we all know, when you need to really tell someone to go fuck themselves, why not do it with a mug? Right? We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, discussing the beginning of Xi Jinping's third term, now with no term limits ahead. Today Explained looked at Xi's authoritarianism in action. Consider This covered the Uyghurs, Taiwan, and what this third term could mean for China-U.S. relations. Democracy Now! discussed human rights abuses in the context of international economic competition. Today Explained looked at Xi's human rights violations in the context of China's history since Mao. 
The PBS NewsHour reported on Xi's rise and the conflict between China's internationalism and the negative views about the country rising as totalitarianism takes hold. And John Oliver on Last Week Tonight looked at the rise of Xi thought, censorship, and Winnie the Pooh. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Today Explained, giving more backstory on Xi's life growing up as the son of two revolutionaries close to Mao. So he is the son of uh, two really important revolutionary figures in China. These are both people who were at the party from very early days. And he grew up in Beijing, um, you know, very close to the halls of power in one of these compounds for the children of the, the party elites. So he really was kind of born into this red heritage and Democracy Now! looked at the rising tensions with Taiwan and the possibility of a Chinese invasion. I think, you know, um, yes, I think it's obvious that uh, there's more aggressive rhetoric coming from the Chinese government uh, on the Taiwan issue. And I know people in Taiwan are nervous. But at the same time, I see, you know, people in Taiwan are they are very protective of the freedom of the human rights they have. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, I just want to pivot from one world-shaping election to another in yet another country that is being profoundly shaped by propaganda. As I speak today... The U.S. is casting votes in the midterms, and concern about election misinformation is at a high. And today, in the Best of Left back channels, transcriptionist Brian shared that his local election office is sharing tips on Facebook about being wary of potential manipulated news, or particularly from videos that can be altered or taken out of context, that sort of thing. And at first glance, this seems bulletproof, right? Like, who could possibly oppose warning about misinformation? Wouldn't that make a person pro-misinformation, which no one could possibly be? And that is true in our universe, but not so in the mirror universe, where so many of our right-wing citizens live these days. In the mirror universe, there's always a way to spin reality to fit a worldview based on Unreality. In this case, it'll go like this. So, number one, the widespread existence of manipulated media and misinformation will give those in the mirror universe, or, or at least the propagandists actively manipulating them, cover for whenever there's legitimate news that they don't like, they can claim that it's manipulated, altered, or taken out of context, and the mirror universe followers will have all the excuse they need to dismiss the information whole cloth. Of course, this is just a continuation of the claim of fake news, right? Number two, though, here's the real brain teaser. The warning about misinformation coming from the government, which can't be trusted, according to them, is evidence of the government's plan to misinform the public. And this makes sense in the mirror universe because the kind of news that constitutes reality in the mirror universe is exactly the kind of stuff that gets labeled as misinformation because it's not true or it's manipulated or altered or taken wildly out of context. Therefore, the only conclusion that they can come to is that the warning against misinformation is itself a malicious plot preparing the public to ignore the truth, trademark, when the truth, trademark, is inevitably revealed by MAGA truth seekers, trademark. Hence, warning about misinformation actually equals an effort to misinform. Now, of course, this doesn't make sense to most of us, and the only reason I was able to even twist my brain into that sort of pretzel to try to see things from the perspective of the mirror universe is that over the past several weeks, I've been seeing news stories pop up in my feed of right-wing media 
about what they see as nefarious efforts by the FBI and Facebook and maybe others to work together to reduce misinformation around the election. So basically, the key to understanding the whole frame of this argument is that when the media or government or any other official agency speaks about misinformation, the definition of that word as heard in the mirror universe is right-wing news we don't like. Now, of course, in our universe, that's exactly how the term fake news works. If someone on the right is talking about fake news, it's much more likely that it's just something they don't want to be true rather than something that is actually false. And that is precisely how they see the term misinformation. And so a local election office putting out an incredibly, well, helpful, but also innocuous warning to the general public to look out for misinformation so that they are not misled, misled something that could and should be seen as a universally good piece of information will inevitably be twisted to be seen as a nefarious plot with the intention to misinform. And I I know this is not a hopeful analysis. I will grant you that. (laughs) We are definitely in a bad situation and no one has a clear idea of how to get out of it. So I'm sorry to leave you on a down note. I I have nowhere else to go with that. Um, But happy election day. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Memberships how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of the Left Discord community to discuss the show or the news or the election or other shows or literally anything you want. Links to join are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.